It's good to see you guys. Did you have a good uh, countryside fair, those of you who went, participated? Thank you for all of you who served and helped with that. It is my uh, youngest child's, probably most of my children, but my youngest child, not my youngest child, my youngest son, his favorite night of the year, his favorite night of the year. And so he always has this emotional high and this emotional crash when it's over. He has recovered, and so we're grateful for that, grateful for that. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, begin reading our text in a, this final chapter of the letter written by Peter, first letter written by Peter, beginning in verse 1, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As we dive back into our text Regarding God's design for elders, I believe Charles Spurgeon's Spurgeon-esque description of a biblical shepherd is both helpful and compelling. He said this, he said, the true shepherd spirit is an amalgam, that is a mixture, of many precious graces. He is hot with zeal, but he is not fiery with passion. He is gentle, yet he rules his class. He is loving, but he does not wink at sin. He has power over the lambs, but he is not domineering or sharp. He has cheerfulness, but not levity. Freedom, but not license. Solemnity, but not gloom. I think that's a great picture of who the men in our text that Peter is exhorting are called to be, that great amalgam of many precious graces. It is a picturesque interpretation of the qualifications of elders that we briefly examined in 1 Timothy 3 last time. And hopefully, as we think through this, it is helpful to re-engage your minds to, to where we are in this text. You remember from last time that this text teaches us that faithful under-shepherds are responsible to lead their sheep to be committed to Christ in the midst of suffering. And Peter began communicating this charge to elders in verse 1 by way of a constraining appeal that involved both an authoritative exhortation and his personal example. And you see that right there in verse 1. Elders are to be men who love Christ and who love Christ's church by leading them and also men who model that truth with their lives. Well, this then leads us to the heart of this passage and a a second distinct detail that Peter communicates in his charge to elders, which is this. It is the critical task of faithful under-shepherds. The critical task of faithful under-shepherds. And the reason why I refer to this as the heart of this text is because here at the beginning of verse 2 is where we find the main verb that, that governs this set of verses. Shepherd the flock of God among you. This is the exhortation that Peter authoritatively gives. This is what Peter modeled as a fellow elder and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherding the flock among you is the critical task given to all elders. To shepherd is to lead, it is to guide, it is to rule, and it is to 
care for. It is the primary metaphor used for how elders are to care for their church in the New Testament. And as we think through this critical task of shepherding the flock of God, our text gives us four elements of this task to consider. Four elements of this task to consider. And the first element we see is found in the use of the metaphor itself, which we will refer to as the picture of shepherding. The picture of of shepherding. The metaphor of shepherding is used by the biblical writers all over the place in both the Old and New Testaments. Therefore, it is important for us to understand this metaphor as well so that we get a complete picture of what Peter is commanding here in this verse. But for our purposes, I simply want to look at one Old Testament text and one New Testament text to help clarify this this picture. So I want you to turn first of all to the very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, David, the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this text, David is extolling our great shepherd king by explaining how Yahweh shepherds his people. And you've heard this text preached many times in our church, and it's a good text. I'm sure you've memorized this. I think you memorized this in Sparky's. Is that correct? And so, so you probably have this text ingrained in your minds, which is good, and you should. So I just want to spend a couple minutes thinking through this. As David sat there in the fields of of Judea, shepherding the sheep that belonged to his father, he was reminded of how Yahweh, the shepherd king, cares for his people. That's what I love about this psalm. And I simply just want to draw out a few parallels from this psalm that help us to see the priorities which must guide faithful under-shepherds in their shepherding of God's people. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time here because you'll notice that we are only going to cover about eight words in our text today, and this is why. But, but I want you to get this picture. I think it's a helpful picture. As you look at this text, and it says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. It reminds faithful under shepherds that Yahweh is their great provider and that he is to be their ultimate satisfaction in the midst of the task. And that's, David realized that, that, that Yahweh was his great shepherd. Yahweh was the one who cared for him. Yahweh was the one who provided for him. And as under-shepherds enter into the task of, of shepherding God's people, they must never lose sight of the reality that God is their ultimate provider, that God is the great shepherd. For many reasons, they're accountable to him. They're going to answer to him but also that God is the one who is going to supply. As they faithfully give their lives to the people of God, in doing the task that God has called them to do, Yahweh is going to be the ultimate provider. It's not up to the individual under-shepherds. It's not up to the plurality of under-shepherds. It's God who's going to provide because God is the one who provides ultimately for his people. And we see that kind of paralleled there in verse 1. He says, I lack nothing. That's what I shall not want. The faithful under-shepherd will lack nothing when he gives himself to this task, knowing that God is going to supply all that he needs to do what he has called him to do. Secondly, we see faithful under-shepherds, faithful under-shepherds see that their task is that they are to provide for the sheep, spiritual food, just as the great shepherd provides for his people. 
As you say that Yahweh provides for his people in verse 2, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Yahweh always provides for his people. Yahweh always gives to his people everything that they need. I think we forget that. I think we lose sight of the reality that, uh, or I guess the distinction between what we, what we need and what we want so often. But he always provides what we need. Faithful under-shepherds need to see that as Yahweh provides for his people, their task as his under-shepherds is to provide spiritual food for the people of God. And they do that through the preaching of the word and through the explaining of the, of the text. Faithful under-shepherds are to, are to feed God's people spiritual food. Third, faithful under-shepherds see that they are to lead and guide the sheep. So he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is what Yahweh does for his people. He guides us. He leads us daily through his word to live every day for his glory and for his honor and for the extension of his kingdom. Faithful under-shepherds need to see that their responsibility, their job as, as under-shepherds in Christ's church is to lead God's peoples, to help come alongside and guide them to be the people that God has called them to be, to be the people who love Christ, who love the church, who love their families, who, who want to extend the kingdom of God, who are faithful in evangelism and discipleship. Under-shepherds must lead and guide the sheep as Yahweh leads and guides us. Fourth, faithful under-shepherds see that they must protect the sheep. You see that in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Different uses. The rod was disciplinary, but it was also for protection. The staff was was for protection as well. And that's what God faithfully does to us as we go through the deepest valley of darkest gloom is, is, is what this is talking about, this valley of deep darkness. The most difficult issues and situations and circumstances that we face in life and as, as corrupt people in a fallen world, the, the things that we have to deal with, our faithful shepherd is there to lead us, to guide us. excuse me, to comfort us, to protect us, to provide for us. And as the people of God deal with these different issues, faithful under-shepherds are to come alongside there to protect the sheep. They're to protect the sheep. They're to walk with the sheep in the midst of of their darkest days. Fifth, faithful under-shepherds see that they must care for the sheep with with courage. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. David can sit there in this metaphor that he's speaking of. He can sit there in the presence of his enemies because God is with him. He's right there and he's saying, listen, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you even in the presence of your enemies. Faithful under shepherds need to encourage their people to walk with courage. To be faithful, to be courageous in this difficult life that we have. Six faithful under-shepherds see that they must be committed to pointing their people to the great shepherd who will see them all the way through to the end. He says, surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's continual loyal love, that hesed, that, that steadfast love is is what is going to preserve God's people all the way to the end. But another reality that he will hold me fast. Faithful under-shepherds need to continually present that to their people. They need to continually point them to this great shepherd who is the one who is going to faithfully lead them to the end. Faithful under-shepherds must see Yahweh as their model and seek to lead and care for their people as he has done for us. That's simply what I wanted you to see from this text. 
God is so loving and so gracious, and he cares for his people so intimately and so delicately and so faithfully. That is to be paralleled in his church. The men who God calls out to lead his people are to be these kinds of people. They are to model themselves after Yahweh in caring for for the people of God. And there's a second text that I want you to notice briefly that kind of helps fill out this picture of shepherding. And it involves Yahweh incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that text is John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 10. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd." For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When looking at the perfect shepherding of Jesus Christ, we want to remember that elders are not Christ. Not Christ, and Christ had some specific tasks involved in his mission that can't be mimicked. Christ did some things that elders cannot or ever will be able to do. For instance, like giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for the eternal salvation of his sheep. That's what Christ did. Elders of churches don't do that. They can't do that. They are not called to do that. Christ is the only perfect sacrifice for sin. However, there are a couple of things I want to point out that elders must strive to mimic that I I see clearly in this text. First of all, is the faithful under-shepherds must see that they are called to live sacrificial lives for the sheep. Certainly they are not Christ, and certainly they cannot give their lives as a ransom for many as Christ did, but they can look at that perfect sacrifice. They can look at that perfect model and they can say, I need to be sacrificial in the way that I deal with people. They cannot sacrifice in the same way, to the same extent. It will never have the impact that Christ's sacrifice had, but they can look at the perfect sacrifice of Christ as the model for how they are to live their lives for the people of God. Faithful under-shepherds must be sacrificial. Second, faithful under-shepherds must protect the sheep from false shepherds. You see that in 12 through 14, as Jesus does that so faithfully for his people. As there's a hired hand, he's not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, and he, he leaves, and he strays. And the sheep flee, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Flees because he has a hired hand and not concerned for the shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I take care of my sheep. I know my sheep. They know me. Faithful under-shepherds of Christ's church, as we'll see in just a moment, are, are faithful to shepherd the people that God has given them. And then faithful, they need to be faithful to protect the people from the hired hands that are out there that are not the good shepherd. From the voice of those who would try and sway people to their influence and move them away from Christ, protect them from those people, from those false shepherds. Third, faithful under-shepherds must, take, must make sure their ministry is, is focused on communicating the voice of the good shepherd so that they follow him. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, verse 14, and I know my own and my own know me, even as my father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Since I have other sheep who are not of this fold, I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, 
They will become one flock with one shepherd. True sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. That's why you can look at a person's life. It can take several months, several years, but, but if they are driven by the voice of someone other than the great shepherd, then they're not a follower of that shepherd. As you look at your life, you are either hearing the voice of the good shepherd and heeding the voice of the good shepherd and following the good shepherd, or you are hearing the voice of false shepherds, heeding their voice and obeying them. And you have to evaluate that. You have to look at your life and you have to look at who calls the shots in your life. Who are you obeying? Who are you hearing? Who has the greatest influence on your mind and on your heart? See, one of the crucial tasks of faithful under-shepherds is to continually, week after week, day after day, point the people of God to the voice of the great shepherd so that they are hearing him, so that they are heeding that word, and so that they are following him. Any under-shepherd who is not calling people to the voice of the great shepherd, directing them to hear his voice, are not being faithful to the task in which we were called. It's why we are so committed to expository preaching, teaching in this church. Right? How are we hearing the voice of God? It's not audibly. That's not happening today. That's not how God speaks to his people. You want to hear the voice of God? You open the word of God. And you read the word of God and you hear the voice of God. That's why we are committed to expository teaching and preaching in this church because we want people to hear the voice of the great shepherd. And that's why any shepherd who is straying from the book and doing their own thing and coming up with their own things is not pointing people to the voice of the great shepherd. Faithful under-shepherds must be committed pointing their people to the voice of the good shepherd so that they follow him. In order to do that, elders must be consumed with the good shepherd themselves so that they model his faithful character to his people. Peter is drawing from from these various parts of, of the metaphor this picture that is painted in the Old Testament, the New Testament, to command these elders to to understand their great task to shepherd the flock of God in these ways. Well, this leads us then to a second element of this crucial task that is critical for faithful under-shepherds to understand. And that is that God is the shot-caller of shepherding. God is the shot-caller of shepherding. You notice this element there in the command that Peter gives. He says back in 1 Peter 5, he says, Shepherd the flock of God. The sheep are God's people. They belong to God. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to God. They don't belong to the elders of the church. They don't belong to other leaders. They belong to God. He owns them. Therefore, faithful under-shepherds must care for God's people in a very careful and intentional way. They're handling delicate property. (laughs) Property that is not their own. In fact, Jeremiah 23 gives a warning to the spiritual leaders of Israel regarding what will happen when under-shepherds forget this critical reality and they neglect their task. Listen to these words. He says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. 
You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of the flock out of the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. And I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will there be any missing, declares the Lord. What I want you to just note from that text is that those who do not fulfill their task as faithful under-shepherds get removed. And in this case, it's these, these leaders of Israel who were, who were defrauding these people of Israel and pointing them to a false way of religion. They were not taking care of these people as they should. And God said, listen, you're going away, and I'm going to bring evil upon you. And then I'm going to gather these people, and I'm going to bring them faithful shepherds. And that serves as a warning to all under-shepherds that they have responsibility to care for the people of God. People of God. And how precious God's people are to God. Are they not? He purchased them with the blood of his own son. His son who he has been with since eternity past. Eternally. Never any separation. And he sent his son, didn't just send his son to do something, to be some kind of example, but he sent his son to purchase his people by crushing his son, Isaiah 53 says. He loves his people with the same love that he has for his son. See that in Romans chapter 8. He has given them every spiritual blessing in his son. He has made them joint heirs with his son. And there is nothing that can ever separate them from the love demonstrated by his son. God loves his people. They are precious to him. He loves them as he loves his own son. And so when Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, these men who are reading this and understanding their calling as elders are hit with this stark reality that these people are not my own to deal with. I don't have a right to rule them as I wish. Well, I don't have a right to get angry with them or be impatient with them. I don't have a right to terrorize them in any way. These faithful people belong to God who has purchased them with the blood of his own son. And listen, if, if you are not a part of these blood-bought people then you need to be a part of this blood pot people. You need to come to this God who has demonstrated his love in his son and given you the opportunity for eternal life. You need to turn from your sin, from whatever you're trusting in, and you need to turn to Christ alone. Trusting in his perfect life lived in your place and his death that he died sacrificially on your behalf for your sin and his resurrection that he did to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice. The people who are precious to God are those who are bought by his son. And so if you're not, you need to come to him today on his terms. He will give you life, peace, and joy. He'll grant you forgiveness of sin. He will reconcile you to the Father. You will be on your way to eternity in heaven. 
He will begin, as John says, to live life abundantly the very moment that you turn to him. Believe in Christ today. God's people are precious to him. Therefore, elders must be patient and long-suffering in their dealings with the precious saints that they have been given as a stewardship. Heavy-handed shepherding is not biblical. Coming down and crushing people is not biblical. Ruling people's lives in a way that comes in and, and takes away their personhood as can happen sometimes. It's not biblical. God loves his people and he has bought his people that he chose before the foundation of the world and he has put men in place to shepherd them and to love them and to care for them and to be good stewards in that work. Faithful under-shepherds must constantly remember that they are operating on delegated authority and borrowed time. They didn't make themselves under-shepherds. They didn't designate how long they're going to do it or for how much time they have. God calls the shots on that because it's his flock. The sheep belong to God. Elders must handle them appropriately. There's a third element of this task that we must consider, and that is this. It is the parameters of shepherding. The parameters of shepherding. Notice the command in verse 2 once again. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Among you. Elders are called to shepherd the flock of God among them. This ties into what we considered for a couple minutes last time as Peter exhorted the elders in verse 1 to He exhorted the elders among the people. Those who are among the elders are those who make up the local church that God has given to those shepherds. Each local church is to have, as we talked about last time, its own plurality of elders that, that governs those specific people. Under shepherds are not called to shepherd all believers everywhere. That is not the call of elders. Elders of countryside are not elders of Grace Church. They're not elders of I'm having a hard time thinking of a, of Trinity Bible Church. Elders of Countryside Bible Church, the elders of Countryside Bible Church. And they are responsible for the people of Countryside Bible Church. Their primary sphere of influence is to be their local church who affirmed them as elders. There are several implications that result from this that I think we need to think through. First, as I mentioned last time, I just want to clarify this a little bit. Parachurch organizations and ministries are not churches and should not function as churches. Why? Well, because they don't, for the most part, have elders shepherding among them. So when you look at a biblical church, there's many facets to a biblical church. The the preaching and teaching of the church, the the function of the church altogether. But then you have the reality that a church must be governed by a group of qualified men, elders. And so these parachurch organizations that exist in so many places, at so many levels, for the most part do not have elders shepherding among them or having oversight over them. Well, as I said, this does not mean there is not a place for these types of ministries. It does mean that they should function under the oversight of a local church elder board. That is the most biblical model. If they don't, the question is, where is their accountability? Where is a parachurch's accountability? Who governs that? They might have a a board who oversees that ministry, but have those men been vetted? Are they qualified, biblically speaking, to make decisions about teaching and discipleship? Because you look at parachurch organizations, and what are they wanting to do? They're wanting to disciple people, right? Again, take, for example, on-campus ministries. They're wanting to share the gospel, and they're wanting to disciple people. Good things, agreed? 
good things should be happening. But who's overseeing that body of doctrine that they are teaching? Who's overseeing what's happening, how that's happening? If there's not a local group of, of elders from a local church who's overseeing that particular ministry, there's no real accountability for those people. And so when you go to an event that is put on by one of these things, I've talked to several of you who go to, who go to some of these things at times, and you say, yeah, sometimes it's kind of weird. Sometimes you get some random person in there, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Why is that? Well, because there's no governing board of qualified, vetted men, biblically speaking, elders, who are running that show, who are keeping that ship pointed in the right direction. The desire of these ministries is good, to share the gospel and make disciples, but if they are not functioning under the oversight of a local church, I find it hard to prove in the New Testament that they are functioning biblically. You walk through the New Testament, it is all about the local church and the extension of the local church. It is not about groups deciding who they're going to be on their own and coming up and sprouting up everywhere and doing their own thing. Because, see, the primary problem is that the majority of these parachurch ministries see themselves as, as a faithful substitute for the local church instead of doing whatever they can do to get people plugged into the local church. Hey, just come to this. This is good enough. You just be a part of this ministry. This is where you're going to get your spiritual food. And, and it is true. God could use that, certainly, especially if there's faithful people teaching, where you could be built up in the faith. That's good. It's not a substitute for the local church. And we're never to see it as that because that's not what it is. The point of any parachurch ministry that is functioning in a biblical way is to be pointing people to particular local churches and making sure they're getting involved. And I think it's biblical to say that these ministries exist in the rogue way that most of them do because the church is not fulfilling its mission as it should be, right? Which should give us pause and challenge us. Why do, you know, Piper said once, why do missions exist? Because worship doesn't, right? If the church is fulfilling their responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission, right, to make disciples by evangelizing and teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all these things, if the church is not fulfilling that commission, then what's going to happen? Well, people are going to pop up because they, they feel the burden of that Great Commission, which they should, and they're going to begin to operate in their own way, on their own terms, outside of the biblical parameters that God has designed. And so if the church is fulfilling its mission, it may have all kinds of branches. I would love to see different branches at different colleges that function under the, uh, under the auspices of Countryside Bible Church. And there's a lot of logistics that go into that, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to pull off without the right kind of manpower. But, but that would be a great desire. And so that those people are then pointed back to the church, pointed back to that local body of elders who, who is governing that church. That's how the church fulfills the Great Commission. It can have all kinds of arms and, and, and branches, for mixing the metaphors, all kinds of different things that are happening. But they're the ones overseeing that. Think about Christian camps. If I haven't stepped on anybody's toes yet, let me just do this. Christian camps, we love camp, don't we? Now, I like the way we do camp. Hasn't always been the way I've done camp. It may not be always the way you've done camp either. I was always a part of camps, right? I'd go to camp, especially as a youth pastor. I'd go and set up my pop-up camper. Yep, I had a camper at one point, and, and I would set that up for weeks. And uh, there, were, there were bugs, and, and it was hot. And I did not love that. But... That's what I did. I was there. I was a program guy. I was teaching people to shoot BB guns and go down a zip line, which I know I surprised a lot of people. Those things, those things have happened. But, but I really came to grips with what's happening here? Who's running this camp? I find out, you know, there's a board. Who are these guys? And then these random guys. They're good guys, great guys. Some business minds and different things. Are they vetted, qualified biblical elders? Does this church report to a church? Does this camp report to a church? And if you look at all these different camps that are happening, 
most of the time, not all of them, most of them are not under the auspices of the local church. That's why you have the strange throw your stick in the fire night, right? Different thing that's happening on that Friday night where you're going to recommit your life to Christ and tell all kinds of crazy stories and and people are going to start crying and get all emotional. All that kind of strange, decisionistic, wild stuff is because there's no church overseeing this and saying, hey, camp director, bad idea. Don't do that ever again. That's how all that stuff goes down. We had 45 decisions for Christ, really. According to whose scale? It's just a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Camps are good things. But they need to function under the auspices of a local church. All of that, when Peter says, shepherd the flock of God among you, there's so much involved in it. There's a second implication. Sorry, I got off on a sidetrack on that. I just, it's so important we have a good ecclesiology. The second implication of this phrase among you is that under shepherds need to know who the sheep are and who they are accountable for. <laughs> got to know who people are. If under shepherds are going to give an account to God, they got to know who they're accountable for. The little phrase among you delineates the necessity of formal church membership. Yes. Formal church membership, it's biblical. Do you see those words in the Bible? No. Is it biblical? Absolutely. In, very, in multiple places. But here, this is a big place. Because if God will call elders into account for the specific people that he has given them to shepherd, there needs to be a specific process to figure out who those people are so that the under-shepherd can carry out his duties faithfully. If Peter is giving this command to shepherd the flock of God among you, There's got to be something to the among you. How do we determine who is among you? Is it every single human that walks in and out the doors of the building? Well, in some sense, yes. But who are those people that the elders are to devote their lives to, to disciple and to pour into, to grow up into the head who is Christ? It's got to be people who have gone through this process so that they know who they are. Friends, church membership is biblical and it is critical to the functioning of a healthy church. It helps to fulfill what Peter is laying out here. A third implication of this phrase, among you, is that elders are called to be active and not passive in their shepherding duties. Because they have a particular people to govern, they need to be active in their lives so that they are moving them toward the goal. What's the goal? Colossians 1, maturity in Christ. To be a passive elder is to fail in the qualification of aspiring to the work of an elder that is listed in 1 Timothy 1. For an elder to be passive, for an elder to be lazy, for an elder not to embrace his task to actively shepherd people is to not be fulfilling that qualification that is there at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3. If anyone desires the elder, that is, desires the work of an elder. Elders ought to be active in the lives of their people. So what does this look like? What does this look like? That brings us to the fourth element of this task to consider. That is the function of shepherding. You see that there in verse 2 again, as Peter says, shepherding functions as exercising oversight exercising oversight. The Greek verb that makes up this English phrase literally means to have scope over or to look upon. It means to accept the responsibility to care for someone. The noun form of this word is one of the words used for elder in the New Testament, used for bishop or overseer. Exercising oversight speaks of, of watching over the flock by feeding leading, guarding, and protecting them. There are several ways this oversight is is manifested practically. And I'll just run through these as time is getting away from me. Teaching, correcting, and reproving. That is feeding the sheep. Elders are called to feed the sheep. They are called to teach, to correct, to reprove. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, The resource for the elders' ministry in these ways is what? The inspired word of God, which is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so the elder is to take the word of God, is to preach, teach, correct, reprove, exhort, 
couple of verses later in the same context, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, which is the primary way people are taught, corrected, and reproved. That's why elders who are functioning in a biblical way need to be teaching regularly in their church context. To be an elder, as it is so often in many churches, sometimes elder is just this office, this position that it doesn't have a lot of functionality to it. And they'll be the guys that have their long elders meeting and make decisions about stuff, but they're not actively functioning in the life of this church. I mean, every elder in this church is teaching constantly, regularly, week in, week out in different venues because that's what they're called to do. They're called to feed the sheep. It happens by praying for your people. Isn't that what Acts chapter... Six says, Acts chapter six, where you have the deacons chosen. Why were they chosen? Because the elders were to, to be about preaching the word and praying for people. Praying for people, counseling. We are given instructions how to personally counsel from First Thessalonians five fourteen. Help the weak, reprove the disobedient, patient with everyone. That verse right there. Pastors, elders need to be involved in counseling people. This takes place in that one-on-one discipleship ministry. Caring for the needs of people, encouraging people, protecting people. This, this is key. Acts chapter 20, Paul spells this out briefly as he's talking to the Ephesian elders Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There you see that again, among you. To do what? To shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from them, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Elders must protect the flock. Primary things to protect from. Just list a few of these things. False teachers, false doctrine, worldly philosophy that's coming in your ears constantly. Humanistic worldview, taking God out of every element of life, focus on the natural instead of the supernatural. Potential temptation traps, wolves within the church walls, unrepentant professing Christians, subtle shifts from the truth. They need to be protected from laziness or over-serving. Some people don't do anything. They're members of the church and they don't do anything. Others are members of the church and they do everything. And they start to get worn out and worn to a frazzle. And what's happening? Well, you're involved in all of these different things. You never see your family. Elders need to protect their people from things like that. Primary means of protection would be this, would be saturating them with the truth. That it goes back to that teaching, exhorting, reproving, correcting, being invested in their lives, warning them about the new fads. There's always something new in Christianity, isn't there? I should say Christianity in quotes. Calling out false teachers, there is a time for that. It's not every week. It's not constantly. But there is a time to call out false teachers. Calling out bad theology is the job of the elder. So that you're aware of it. Modeling a life of truth is a way to help protect your people because they're looking, as we're going to see next time, that elders are proving to be examples to the flock. And then another primary way that elders protect the people is by practicing church discipline. It's a great means of protection for the church. Faithful under-shepherds are called to shepherd the flock among them, exercising oversight. It is indeed a critical task. Next time, we're going to consider the attitudes 
and the motivations that accompany a faithful under-shepherd there. And we should get all the way through verse 4. Pretty excited about that. You know, as I walk through this and think about these things, I, there's, a, there's a lot of practical things, I think, that just kind of come out as you see who the people who are leading the church are to be. And, and I think hopefully you're seeing that, <clears throat> that this is how you should be. <laughs> that the call to faithful men is the call to faithful people. And that you see why we do things the way that we do things here at Countryside. Why our church is so distinct in many ways and some people you might interact with, other believers who think, man, you guys, that's, that's pretty wild there, maybe too strict or whatever it may be, whatever people come up with. We're just trying to come under the, the exhortation of Peter, shepherd the flock of God among us. Now, I just praise God for such a clear design for his church and that we get to be a part of it. He hasn't left us just to wonder. He hasn't left us to wonder about what this is to look like. He has he's given it to us. He said, this is how you function. And what does God do? Well, he takes a church like ours, which he is doing, and he is blessing the world. <laughs> he's blessing the world through the extension of missionaries, through a faithful congregation who is witnessing to their neighbors and their friends. He is continuing to build his church and make this a lighthouse. And we got to be a part of that. I hope you love the church. Not just our church, but I hope you love our church. Because the Lord is just so kind to give us this. So kind. Let's pray. Father, thank you. <clears throat> You have laid out in your word this simple but a critical command to help us see through the implications of it how the church is to operate and to function, the importance of the qualifications, the importance of the oversight, the importance of submission the importance of humility. More than anything, the importance of our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we simply want to be faithful to him as those in overseeing roles and as those in submissive roles. We all Submit to the great shepherd who is Christ our King. Because we love him. We want to worship him. We want to obey him. We're so grateful he has purchased us with his own blood. So Father, draw our hearts closer to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.